It's this amazing balance between trying to work with the whole of yourself as material, but not think of yourself as abstract material because you are a living, thinking person. Hello, and welcome to the Terpsichore podcast. We're back in 2023 to bring you more intimate conversations with leading women in dance. If you're new to the podcast, my name is Emily May. I'm a British-born dance writer and critic, and I've been based in Berlin, Germany since 2018. Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus, and also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Terpsichore and Sneakers, Terpsichore celebrates female dancers, choreographers, and bodies in motion by interviewing leading women from the dance industry. For episode 16 of the podcast, I invited British contemporary dance pioneer Siobhan Davies to discuss her life, career, and the artists that have inspired her. Having originally studied visual arts, Siobhan discovered contemporary dance in 1967 when she began to take classes with the Contemporary Dance Group, which later became London Contemporary Dance Theatre. In 1969, Siobhan started performing with the company and by the 70s was choreographing for them. Since these beginnings, Siobhan has had many different chapters of her career, from joining forces with Richard Austin and Ian Spink to form second stride one of the most influential independent British dance companies of the 80s to taking a year sabbatical in America on a Fulbright Arts Fellowship working as an associate choreographer for Rombert Dance Company and founding the Siobhan Davies Dance Company. Siobhan's work is marked by her interest in presenting work in visual art and gallery spaces and throughout her career she has worked with venues including Victoria Miro Gallery, the ICA and Turner Contemporary. In the 2000s she opened Siobhan Davies Studios in London, a base for her research that has become a place of traffic between dance and other fields. Two years ago, Siobhan stepped down as Artistic Director of Siobhan Davies Studios. Since then, she's been busy with various personal projects, from being appointed as an Associate Professor at C. Dare Coventry University, to creating Transparent, a film that unravels the complex processes underpinning her 50 years of work in dance. Premiered at the BFI London Film Festival, the film is going to be shown at Sadler's Wells on the 20th of April. Ahead of the screening, I couldn't wait to speak to Siobhan, to reflect on her extensive career, and to discuss her plans for the future. Well, hi, Siobhan. Thank you so much for being here on the Terpsichore podcast. How are you doing and where are you speaking to us from? Thank you for inviting me. I'm speaking from my home. Behind me are some images from the film that we might talk about later. And at my feet are lots of toys belonging to my grandchildren. Amazing. Have they been visiting or are they there very regularly? Grandchildren turn up a great deal in this house, which is lovely for me. Absolutely lovely. And there seems to be a lot of them right now. Well, thank you so much for describing your background, and it's a perfect background for the piece that we're going to be speaking about today, the film. Before we get to that, I wanted to have a bit of a look through and reflection on your amazing career that you've had over the past, it's 50 years, right? It is. A lot to reflect on, but we will try our best because you've done so much. Normally, we start these conversations on the podcast by asking our guests about their first experiences of dance and their first introductions to movement. And I was wondering if you can remember how you first became introduced to dance as an art form and what intrigued you about it at that very beginning point? It's a great question. It's layered. I was young enough to be able to see Margot Fontaine and Rudolf Nureyev dance. They were definitely the thing of the moment in terms of performance. I would have been probably going to art school, so I had no intention of being a dancer. It would have been before going to art school, but I saw them dance 
with all of the power and the passion that they could bring to the stage. But the moment that gave me super clarity was that she was dancing Romeo and Juliet. She is a tiny figure in the middle of the huge Royal Opera House stage and she raises one arm. The entire house wasn't breathing. This tiny gesture resonated far beyond my imagination that anybody could do that. And I had no intention of being a dancer at that moment, but I do remember that very powerfully. But I also remember loving watching animals move. I loved watching horses gallop or dogs run. I didn't like watching birds. I thought they were very strange when they were hopping on the ground. I thought thought that was a very strange activity. You weren't intending to go into dance at that point and you were studying visual art. What were your kind of interests in visual art and what were you doing first as a student and then how did this begin to transition into focusing on dance? Well, I was luckily brought up not solely by my parents, but by my godparents who were very interested in the visual arts and collected British post-war art. I would spend time with them and the excitement of being in the post-war era when things were happening and for them art was happening and music. They ran a magazine called The Ambassador, which was basically for fashion. So there was fashion, furniture makers, Albrecht. Peter Pears, Benjamin Britten, the Royal Ballet, all of those things they were so excited by and then also by the art of the period. So I just felt that there was this seam of activity that grown-ups did but was just always present. So it felt like a very exciting world but a quite natural world because I'd heard it spoken about so much. I went to art school. I wasn't a very good academic. My art teacher, Miss Felicity Ashby, who I will remember all my life, had time for me and she had time for me as somebody drawing and painting. That was extraordinary. She wasn't dismissive. The other teachers were dismissive and so it again was somehow natural with these two rivers of opportunity running through me that I would go to art school. So I went to Hammersmith School of Art and Building and we were always on because it was the late 60s. One day somebody took me to a dance class because they thought I looked bored and I never stopped. It's one of those extraordinary things. I simply, I never stopped. You started dancing with Contemporary Dance Group, right? Who later became London Contemporary Dance Theatre. Yes. Is that the class that you went to? The class was above an old fabric shop off Oxford Street. There was no company. There was no nothing. It was a series of classes. And then in, oh gosh, I think it was 1967, there was a performance at the Adeline Jeunet Theatre, which was the beginnings and I had a walk-on part literally walk-on the combination of being backstage which was something I had always loved from much earlier on in my life that wonderment of preparation before the curtain opens and then seeing the audience at the same time things began to gel I could be in this moment of preparation and doing what was the movement that you were learning at that time what was contemporary dance like compared to what we know contemporary dance as now because I know obviously at that time there was a lot coming over from America right and people like Robert Cohen who there's just been an amazing retrospective of and celebration of his life he was working really hard to start the contemporary dance scene in England can you maybe describe a bit for us what that time was like and what the movement was like he brought over the Martha Graham technique the other man who helped develop London Contemporary Dance Theatre was a man called Robin Howard who loved Martha Graham and her technique but I think they realised that other inputs would be useful so we occasionally learnt Indian dance and we learnt work from Merce Cunningham. So my main training would have been in the Graham technique, but I'd come across enough of the Merce Cunningham technique to be hugely curious about it, even though 
there wasn't an ongoing practice of that in London at that time. But, I mean, you could be doing a class with visual artists, actors, musicians, not necessarily all dancers. We would all somehow manage to get ourselves through class. And then, of course, there were professional dancers there as well. But it was the collectivity of these different disciplines in one room, which is slightly shambolic, but I found that very exciting. So I didn't feel really bad that I didn't know enough about dance because I was with people who were as curious as I, but also as, well, shambolic. That's quite interesting because then later in your work, it becomes very clear this interest in different disciplines and the collectivity of different people from different approaches coming together. Were you still an art student at this beginning time? Did you leave art school to then become a performer in what turned into the London Contemporary Dance Theatre or did you finish and then join? I went back to Hammersmith School of Art and Building and said, I think I'm leaving. And the teacher said, fine. And that was... (laughs) So I obviously wasn't a great student. But what I did do was break into St. Martin's. I just used to walk into St. Martin's and do the life classes there. And I hadn't joined. I mean, those were the days where you could just sort of sidle in, be at the back and keep drawing. So I kept the drawing up. I mean, eventually they worked out. I probably shouldn't be there, but they were very good about it. I much later on have spoken to visual artists and the kinship between drawing and thinking and dancing. And I think there's something about the act of seeing something or imagining and the hand and the pencil and the paper or imagining and the body and the space and the ground you dance on. I've always liked that kinship and how I might be able to understand it better over time. I just saw the exhibition at Whitechapel Gallery about female abstraction and there's a really nice wall text which talks about painting and dance or it says about the jab of the paintbrush and it uses all these verbs to describe the act of painting as this very movement-based thing. I wanted to ask you quickly about your performance career in London Contemporary Dance Theatre mm-hmm. and then I know you also performed for Richard Alston. Was it his first company, Richard Alston and Dancers? Oh, this where I need Richard by my side. I was in his first work and carried on dancing in his early works. Then he formed a company called Strider, which at that moment I did not join. But then later I worked for him again, post Strider. And then he, Ian Spink and I formed a company called Second Stride. We'd been sort of side by side as makers for a long time. Before we get into your creation, from that performance time for those companies, do you have any particular highlights or memories of performing on stage that are particularly precious to you or pieces that you really can remember performing or creation processes with choreographers? I very much remember Richard's first work called Transit because it was the first work he had made, the first work I had had made on me and three other women. Again, that moment of being backstage and then literally hurtling on stage to do this four minute dance and I nearly can feel that moment now as we unwound ourselves on stage so that was exciting. With Robert Cohan who obviously was the principal choreographer at that time at one point he allowed me to do a duet called Eclipse which was about the moon and the sun. I would have been too naive to do it well at that moment but it gave me a huge sense of the responsibility of bringing everything together 
together, not just whatever technique I had, which was not wonderful at that time, but the sense of occasion, the sense of communication, the sense of the other person you were dancing with, the mixture of the hugeness of being on stage and then the micromanagement of exactly what does your hand do now. That duet allowed me to appreciate really everything I couldn't do, but it gave me the chance to think about it. From this extensive performance experience, how did you transition or decide that you would like to start making your own work? Was it Robert Cohen? He kind of recognised your talent for composition and choreography. Was it him that encouraged you towards creating your own work? Actually, blissfully, to begin with, he asked every member of the company to make something. He said, I don't mind whether you want to or not, you're going to make it. Because then you will understand the vulnerability of a choreographer when you're working with them as a dancer. So I did make something. I think much later on, he told me, you sort of know the thing that can be danced about. So then he carried on and encouraged me to make work. The hardship was that one was being asked to make work in such a disciplined time. Like, you know, can you make this work in three weeks? And at a certain point, I found that uninteresting to do. I couldn't expand, but I was given the most incredible opportunities by him. At that time when you just started, what were some of the main thematic or compositional questions that you were interested in? I know your work was quite different to what else was going on at the time. Like Richard Austin's work, for example, is very musical based and other things were a lot more theatrical at that time. What was it for you that interested you in pursuing a a more abstract path? or, Or how would you describe your interests at that time? To be honest, I think they were from the visual arts. I think I was in to some extent. I was about to say drawing with the body. Now, I hope that I was also thinking about how the body feels as both a human being and material. I think I was thinking like that, but I don't know that I was articulating it like that. It's this amazing balance between trying to work with the whole of yourself as material, but not think of yourself as abstract material because you are a living, breathing thinking person. All of these things that you're saying resound for all of the work you've done. Would you say that your interests or focus changed over time or it was just kind of a constant research process trying to discover these questions that you'd have from the beginning? It's such a good question but it's quite hard. I think of my work as in chunks. So there was a sort of London Contemporary Dance Theatre trunk and my own company chunk and Second Stride chunk and then making the studio later on. Only really in the last year or so have I been able to pull a thread right from the beginning right through to now but I hadn't recognized that thread before and you might ask me what that thread is and I'm not sure if I can say there's one movement in a work called Step at a Time which I made let's say in the 70s and there's one movement in which as the curtain goes up there is a figure in the downstage right hand corner right at the corner and she is in a crouch like a curled up crouch and she gradually unfurls to step out onto the stage there was a moment actually when I was making the film when I thought that movement encompasses everything that gave me a huge release that I can think in such a simple term which allowed me to grow profoundly out from but then I haven't stopped growing yet. You mentioned these different chunks in your career for example you said Second Stride which was your collaboration with Richard Austin and Ian Spink can you maybe talk a little bit about what attracted you all working together as collaborators and how you kind of complemented each other in Second Stride because as we said 
Richard's work is quite different to yours in its motivations, but what was it that attracted you to forming something together, even though you've got different movement concerns? We have performed in each other's works. I don't know that I performed in Ian's work ahead of Second Stride, but Ian and I had definitely danced for Richard. And we had our own repertories, and we were invited to collect together and go to the United States. And I think we were the first British company that was, before London Contemporary Dance Theatre was. So we joined forces to make Second Stride, and we chose the title Second Stride because Richard had made his first company called Strider. So we joined forces to tour the United States. Reasonably soon after that, Richard left to carry on with his own work, and Ian and I stayed together. So there was a practical reason for forming the company. And then, well, I knew my relationship with Richard, and I was hugely fond of him, which I still am, but also realised that our work was becoming more different. And Ian's work is massively theatrical, but I loved performing in his work. But then there came a moment in which I had my first child and I couldn't be as committed to Second Stride so then I dropped out Ian carried on it was both a beautiful experience and a rough experience working within Second Stride because of the similarities and the differences how could we all manage that creatively there were times in which it was anguished but never never regretful it was an incredible thing to do a mixture of exciting and terrifying <laughs> You mentioned there being similarities and differences. Obviously, we talked about yours and Richard's work being different, but mm. one similarity is you're both very inspired by Merce Cunningham's work, right? I don't know Ian's work so well. Richard had gone to America in the 70s, and I had gone there as well to study with Merce. I think I enjoyed the relationship that he had, again, with visual art, but also with rhythm. The Martha Graham the technique doesn't use rhythm particularly. It uses very strong, bold gesture, big, big gestures, which fill the theatre. Merce's work cuts everything down into prismatic, sharp, beautiful elements. I knew I had a lot to learn from that, which I tried my best to do. Kind of coming back to this chunks theme, reading your bio on the Siobhan Davies studio website, saying about wiping the slate clean and then moving on to new things. That's the, the vocabulary it uses. As you mentioned, you left Second Stride. When you left, I believe that's when you went to America for a longer period of time to do a sabbatical with the help of Fulbright Fellowship. Yes. I mean, obviously it's such a mecca for modern dance in New York, but what was it that what made you want to go and do this sabbatical in America? And what did you want to learn or discover while you were there? Well, by then I'd had two children and they were both young, very young. I went to the interview for the Fulbright and I said, to some extent, I need a break. So you might not want to give me the money because at that point I needed slightly to wipe the slate clean. <laughs> and they were absolutely wonderful. And they said, yes, we agree with you. Now go, tell us about it as you go. I didn't do a huge amount of dance. I did a fair amount of release technique, which I wanted to learn about. But these classes were quite often one-to-one -one and extraordinarily expensive. So I did what I could. I watched a lot. And then at a certain point, David, the father of the children, and I and the two children traveled 11,500 miles in a camper van around Around the United States. I think what was important about that was movement, because we were literally camping, then up sticks and moving and camping and up sticks and moving. That idea of moving around a different culture and seeing the different cultures that are held within the United States was extraordinary. And everybody's generosity towards us was extraordinary. Even discovering 11th century buildings of indigenous 
people and as much as I could learn about them at the time was a history of the United States I hadn't expected. And then you return back to New York and you see all of this modernity. So it was less about dance class and it was more about movement in huge space, coming across things, noticing. I think I understood how minimalist music might have taken place because you will travel across some of the states and the landscape only changes by a small amount and quite often only by the sunlight moving across it. So no wonder those repetitious riffs that Steve Reich invented, he might have, I don't know that he did, although I did speak to him at one point and I didn't ask, he might have been in a way making music out of this slow change of light over landscape. And I found that very extraordinary. So yes, movement of light, of car, of wheels, of culture, of people, but not so much about dancing. When you came back to the UK and wanted to start making work again, and I know you founded Siobhan Davies Dance Company, Mm -hmm. how did this time in America influence what you then went on to make? One piece I'm thinking of, even as you were saying about your research, was Wyoming, which must have had such a direct (laughs) correlation to what you were discovering Mm -hmm. and researching at the time. Yeah, how would you kind of summarise how that trip affected your practice? For various reasons, my partner at that point had become incredibly ill. I was trying to handle that and two young children and Richard Alston, bless him, said I'm trying to help you, if you can, would you like to make it work for Rombert, but if you feel you can't, don't worry, don't do it and it was such a generous offer and I made a work to Steve Reich Octet a mixture of the tension that I was having to handle in some ways at home and the experience that I just had in America just released all this movement, this movement just flooded out of me into these dancers at Rombert and it was an exhausting and exhaustive piece to do. I'm not quite sure what that says. That feeling of the rush of release was amazing. Then I formed my own company. One of the areas that I had loved crossing was Wyoming. And again, that idea of sunlight on landscape, only seeing landscape. There were no other people sometimes. It was quite incredible. But then I'd come across the writer Gretel Ehrlich, who had written a book called The Solace of Open Spaces. There's so much detail in her book, even though it was a lot about the landscape, but the detail of personal relationships. I didn't meet her, but when I got back to London, I contacted her and said, would you mind if I use the text of this work? And then we performed the work actually without the text, but we filmed the work with the text. I tried to explore this idea of hugeness and detail. I think all the feeling of that was very available to the performers that I had wanted to work with. And of course, they were amazingly generous to work with. And then life progressed with that company. But I began to get restless with myself at a certain point. I was making because I had the most extraordinary group of artists to work with, with dancers to work with. And I was making because the touring system kind of shaped everything you did. At a certain point, I felt very surrounded and I wasn't able to do it justice. So there was that. And I think I also felt that I was working with these wonderful dancers and not doing them justice because we were constantly working in unheated church halls or very wonderful synagogue. But of course, it wanted to be a synagogue most of the time. I was beginning to grate against systems that I felt I wasn't behaving properly within. 
<laughs> in a way, because I couldn't. And the lottery came along. There was an opportunity to find a studio. I've raced ahead. You may not want to race ahead quite so much, but please let us retrace if you want me to. But I think there was a period of time in which I felt not unfulfilled because I was so lucky to work with the artists I was working with, but not quite right. You are going towards where we're going. Before that, maybe part of the feeling that you were describing about feeling frustrated with the current systems, was that also why you started to, I've got it described here as another white slate moment at the turn of the millennium, where you started working more in museums and galleries and non-traditional theatre spaces. Was this born out of this feeling as well as other things, I guess, as a personal interest in working with the visual arts that you've had from right at the beginning of your career. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. We can all get defined by the circumstances within which we are working and the people that we're working with. Some of the time that is a huge support because you're very lucky to have those circumstances. And then sometimes you need to go, I needed to go, this isn't the support that I think I or dance or dancers may need right now. It needs something else. It needs a slight redefinition. I found that I was making dances in studios and seeing the detail and the commitment behind every dancer exploring all the moves that they were helping make at that time as well. When I went into the theatre, so much of that detail was erased by the ambience of being in theatre and in theatre light and with an audience in front and the stage, that meeting ground between audience and stage. The most important thing to begin with is why can I not be in a position whereby things are seen more clearly? But then it was important to also understand, yes, that can be a gallery situation, but the gallery situation has a whole history behind it of how art made in the 21st century has this history that reaches back millennia and dance does not. So how can you transport dance into a situation that has been made for the visual arts? It took talking to curators and it took talking to other artists and it took talking to the dance artists that I was working with. How do we do that properly? How do we not just assume we can walk in and perform there? That was a huge learning curve and a necessary one. You've worked with such amazing galleries and venues. Victoria Miro, Glasgow Museum of Modern Art, Turner Contemporary, the Arnolfini. I feel like there are certain galleries and places that seem more open to dance and more open to these kind of discussions than others. Can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those collaborations and how it's been like developing works in collaboration with them. One of the first spaces I went into was the private gallery, Victoria Mirror, whose generosity and open-heartedness and commitment to what we did was absolutely extraordinary. In some ways, I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe other you know, galleries will be like this. And they weren't necessarily. But working with the ICA was a, a really good experience because they wanted us to be there. And we were in a clear space, in a space that didn't have any other artwork involved. We were performing there maybe for two weeks. So there was a length to the unpeeling of information, both as we were preparing to go into the ICA, asking the curator to come in and watch what we were doing, and actually being there for quite a long time. That was a learning experience. Going to the Whittington much later on, again, with great generosity, but in that we were in the gallery amongst other galleries. So the influence of how the audience moved from one show 
show into our show or the fact that we could hear the sound work going on in one place which was moving into our space we were trying not to be influenced by it but it came with the audience as they moved through there are knowledges about where the not on purpose but the influence of the work that is being shown in the rest of the gallery informs or interferes with what you're trying to do how does one maintain clarity and commitment in amongst so much other work and then I'm going that's what I want I want to some extent I want that idea in which we're part of a much larger experience it's making quite sure that you don't have the expectation of bringing whatever dance history you have straight into a visual art venue because many of them have no idea what you're talking about. They do not know about a dance history. They may know more now, particularly after the Tate and Catherine Wood's work at the Tate, but at the time I was there, they don't know. So I needed to be very aware that if I said something, I would say it in language that they didn't necessarily understand. And the same way they would use curatorial language about the visual arts that I didn't necessarily appreciate. Having to explain things in this way or like work in a context where there wasn't just kind of like a given base language helped you to kind of clarify things for yourself or clarify your approach. I'm just thinking for myself, when I write things, I always then send them to my mom or like read them to a family member because I mean now after all these years my parents have got more of a contemporary dance knowledge through me and they're very supportive and enthusiastic but I find yeah sometimes like talking it through with people who don't have this like automatic shared language can help like clarify intention. I mean it did two things I wouldn't call any dancer who's worked incredibly hard complacent but I think we might imagine we know our ground even though I think we're testing that ground a lot right now but I think we imagine we know our ground and then you're going into another place and they don't know your ground at all and therefore it's an opportunity to say how much is this part of my ground important to me or how much actually do I want to move into this other area that I don't yet feel very confident about but I feel I will gain knowledge if I enter into that. One thing I wanted to touch on as well with you about working in visual art spaces and developing your approach there. I remember when we spoke for this piece about the continuous network, Mm. which was a project you did more recently, so I'm jumping ahead now. You mentioned about how important it is for you for dancing gallery spaces to not just be seen as relating to artwork on the walls, which I think maybe some people, when they first hear about it, might have the misconception that this is how dance would appear in a gallery. Could you maybe delve deeper into that and why that's important for you and what it is then instead for you to have dance in a gallery space and the intention behind it? I respect dance. I like what dancers do and therefore I would like it to be seen wholly. Often in the theatre it's related to the music or to the design. That can be quite extraordinary but what happens when you try and really focus on the qualities of dance and dancing that I have learnt to love and appreciate and question and want to carry on with how can you treat that as wholly there and if a sculpture is allowed to be wholly there in a space then I would want dance to do the same but over time there has been work which has been performed with other works in the space and I can think of Glasgow where the curator commissioned me to do a work for a gallery space and I think that was still unusual then to be seen amongst other commissions which artists made and it was about the everyday 
So Helka, Kaski and I made a work that was seen amongst about seven other Scottish artists' work in the gallery space. So we were one of, I think it was about seven. But that felt very relevant because we had been commissioned specifically and we were in the company of other artists whose subject matter was the same as ours. We weren't interpreting them, we were equal, we were on the same terms. That felt a very good partnership, but it's quite rare. Or at least it was rare then, I'm not quite sure, now with other artists. Talking about being on a level, again, like referring to the artist statement on your website, it goes into what you were saying about believing in the power of dance as this articulate, expressive art form on a level with mm. music, drama and visual mm. art. Do you believe that when you started working in this context, it was like really important to overstate this? Do you think dance wasn't perceived in this way at that time and it really needed to be demonstrated? If so, do you think over time that that perception is changing? Working with Victoria Miro, she introduced me to Grayson Perry. I was talking about dance and he said, why are you always so apologetic? You don't have to prove anything. It's a very good art form, okay? Now get on with it. <laughs> he was quite right because I think sometimes one's in a position of defending it because it, you're trying to place it in different areas. It's not perceived as strident an art form as others, which have a longer recorded history. And ours does not have a long recorded history. So yes, I have learnt to turn around and go, dance is extraordinary. End of subject. <laughs> you are quite right. There was a period of time where you even had to try and explain yourself if you were trying to get into a gallery space about what dance was or why it doesn't have quite such a profound recorded history or why is it described as fleeting and ephemeral and hardly there or always described as being in the present. Whereas now I think I'm, I'm more of a mind that movement, for a start, every single human being that can learns to be in and of the world through moving. That's our education. That's how my tiny grandchildren when born learn. So if anything, to some extent, dance is central to our existence as human beings rather than at the periphery and ephemeral and about to be blown off the planet. I've been jumping all over the place now, so I'm so sorry, because I know some of the art gallery projects we talked about were for more recent years. But I wanted to come back again to what you were leading on to before and saying that you did also disband your touring company in 2007, I believe. And then you were mentioning the lottery coming into play and opening mm. Siobhan Davies dance studios which is now an amazing building and hub of multidisciplinary creative activity can you tell me a bit more about your motivations for setting it up at the time the motivation was at that time there were very very few dance spaces for choreographers and dancers who were so committed to this art form to actually make work in we were all rehearsing in church halls, any hall that we could find unheated, unsprung, not very clean. I began to feel actually kind of nauseous that I, who had a position in dance at that time, you know, I was considered an okay thing. And I was asking these performers to work in these conditions. So the lottery came about. I sort of knew that I wouldn't get the initial surge of money because I was an individual. Most of the people that went for the lottery were big companies, big organisations. Understandably, the lottery money was drawn towards them. Then there was a second try and I didn't get it. We had got money to make a sort of feasibility study of what kind of building it could be, what borough it could be in, 
what it would entail, what it would mean. So we had done a lot of that. It wasn't gathering speed. It wasn't gathering energy. And I think I went the third time, by which time I had found this space next door to a primary school in Southwark. The lottery came back to me and said, no, I'm very sorry, you haven't got the money again. And I phoned them and I said, okay, I understand. I'm still an individual artist. It's a small organisation. Even if you don't give it to me, you can't lose this space. You absolutely cannot. It's in central London and it'll be good for something. So don't lose this space. Thankfully, you didn't lose the space and you did manage to get it. The lottery came back to you after some rigorous discussions and decision processes. And then you managed to develop Siobhan Davies Studios. Can you tell us a little bit about the next steps that you took after you were finally granted the money? The next broadening of my experience was how to work with an architect and how to really work with an architect, not just say here's an idea, can you get on with it? And she had been with me for the previous few years trying to support this lottery bid, not only to work with the architect, but to really understand how something is built. So in this case, it was an old school, so it had to be rebuilt, but to genuinely understand about materials, the different kinds of materials that were going to contribute to the making of this very beautiful studio. Even where the electricity cables run through the building like veins in a body, even the idea of gravity in the building. So the hanging staircase. How often could the architect Sarah Wigglesworth and I use common language about how a body and a person is structured and how a building is structured and how a building becomes home, not just a structure? How does it become home? And those conversations were one of the most extraordinary of my working life. And I believe hers. The studios have both beauty and heart. And I think everybody notices that when they come in. It's like a tree ring building. Every layer has been considered. Every colour was considered every texture was considered and it was an incredible experience it's like one of the most beloved dance studios in london mm. and that's testament to this homely feel but not only that you went on to win a, a reba award i think sarah and i was kind of dripping sweat by that point but yes no that was wonderful and much deserved the work that sarah put into that and her team and how much the dancers and her team related. I mean, because we had a lot of conversations together and the building is so... We used that word abstract at some point earlier in the interview. I am not convinced of abstraction because I think it's a distillation of ideas as long as within that distillation you don't lose any of the quality of what it is to live as a human and living in a home is part of what it's like to live as a human and therefore the studios need to be able to be a building that relates to human size human rhythm human mood and I think it's incredible that it does that and then maybe we could talk a little bit about the activities that then have gone on inside this home. What were some of your projects based out of Siobhan Davies Studios that you're most proud of? Because I know as well, like it wasn't just creating this studio, it kind of changed your approach as well because you moved away from the touring model, trying to be open for these multidisciplinary projects. Although I used the idea of it being home to a lot of dancers, I also didn't want it to become insular and a bubble. So I knew that different kinds of disciplines should walk through it quite often because then we are challenged by another discipline taking hold of the building in some ways. We did ask artists to respond to the building in some way and put their work up. There was a work that I made called Rota. I had the idea that I would try and make a nugget of a work and then 
ask different artists from very different disciplines to come in and see that nugget and find out not to respond to it in the same way we were talking about not wanting dance to necessarily respond to the work on gallery walls so not to copy it but what would they make of it this little nugget in their own discipline i asked many artists alice oswald the poet which was uh, quite wonderful claire twomey the ceramicist i'm not going to remember everybody's names while i'm in a stress position but many different artists and I tried to make this nugget which is quite hard and a few of them said well we'll we'll come in and we'll just watch you working that'll be fine and so they did and they watched us work the work was a bit hard to explain briefly but it meant that four dancers had to rotate in a circle like a radius arm and keep rotating in a circle and then eventually over a period of time we made patterns of movement of running and walking in which they had to interlink with each other but remain in this walking circle it's hard to explain what really happened was is extraordinarily difficult to do because they had to orientate themselves either in relationship to the room or to each other in a constantly shifting circle so they would fall apart all the time and the various artists would come and go oh my god this is about failing picking yourself up off the floor and trying again and trying again and trying again and they loved that idea and that rhythm and the dilemma that goes with making up until the point it can be accomplished. I really enjoyed that experience because I felt unbeknownst to me, I unpeeled with the other dancers. We unpeeled the crux of what it's like to make something rather than give them the finished idea. And opening up that crux and valuing it and giving value to that was a good thing. That's just a very small (laughs) snippet of things that you've worked on in the studios. You stepped down as the artistic director of the studios uh, a couple of years ago. It is, two and a bit years. What prompted that decision? Was it because you wanted to hand over the reins to new people or you were interested in exploring different products or also having a bit of a rest after all the amazing work you've done? I knew that I would be becoming 70 at some point. At that time, I felt I was honed as an artist in a particular era of time. So I was becoming active in the 60s, 70s and trying to address the dilemmas that were being given to me and the possibilities that were being given to me. You're honed by the culture around you, the people around you, the circumstances, the economy. One is soft wax at a certain point and you just take in the imprint of so many things. And I was very aware that the younger generation of artists that I knew well and respected and loved well were honed in a different way. They had different questions. They had different needs. They had different ideals in some ways. And I thought this building is a place, but it needs to be able to welcome fully those ideas into its walls and therefore I should move aside and enjoy what would happen if I moved aside which I have while I'm saying move on which I did part of me is also going I am less happy with this idea that dance erases itself every generation we are very forgetful of the past generation there's nothing inherently wrong about that in terms of if it's about an individual let's say let's move on from Siobhan Davis there's nothing particularly wrong with that but there is something wrong with the idea of let's always move on from every single generation that comes along because every generation is part of the mulch we can be mulch we don't have to be perfect artists but we should be mulch we should be the compost out of which things get made or challenged even if we're in irritation it's okay but what 
shouldn't happen is that it just vanishes. So then I'm trying to turn around and go, how does one not vanish? <laughs> if there's this quote that I love by Mark Twain, who says that there's no such thing as a new idea and that we simply take different ideas and put them into a mental kaleidoscope and turn and create these new combinations. I, think I love this idea of not forgetting all this dance history, but maybe the way we draw on it or frame it in different ways is what's going to produce the new ideas. And I do think we are living through, I mean, it was complex when I was younger with the Cold War and Vietnam and there were huge things going on at that time. But now I feel the pace of things that are happening in the world are daunting. I mean, so daunting for a younger generation. And that may well be impacting them as makers. And then I don't know, maybe the past ideally can be some form of steadying force. But of course, you know, we weren't ideal either. But what can be drawn from us? I'll go with Mark Twain and you. We talked about you stepping away from Siobhan Davies Studios, but you're still creating. And by this, I mean specifically your film, Transparent, that you've created and is going to be shown at Sadler's Wells in April. This this was a collaboration with the director David Hinton and Hugo Golendening. Can you tell us what inspired the creation of this film? I know you've worked with film before, so it's not anything specifically new, but what made you want to work with this team and explore your processes that have underpinned your 50 years of work? Well, I'd made two films with David Hinton, which were a huge highlight of my creative life. He is an amazing artist. We both thought we could make a third film. I had shown him a sort of study that I've done of images printed on transparent paper. And I've been doing this study for some years and he was very enthused by that. And he said, if it's a study of your practice, then to some extent, this film has got to be about you. I found that complicated in the sense that I feel a film about me has to be about all the other people that I live amongst, that I work amongst. And how do we do that? So the basis of the film was how does one somehow shine a light through a practice, which the prismatic light that comes out of that makes sure that we see everything else that has impacted on a dancer choreographer's life, mine. And that was the premise behind it. A mixture of COVID, the difficulties of living with COVID, of David and I not necessarily being able to work in the same space, slowed us down, which meant that he could not complete the film because he had another very big film to go to. At that moment, Hugo Glendinning came in, much to the happiness of both David and I. But initially it was going to be the two of us. And then in an odd way, I think it kind of celebrates also this idea of a choreographer, a film director, and then much later, a photographer, filmmaker, becomes part of the mix, let alone composers and so much imagery. So it feels as if the film allowed my basic ethos of how do you work together? How do you make things together? Through the process of creating the film, and because obviously it's analysing a lot to do with your processes. Did it make you reflect on your career in new ways through the process of creating it? Did you have any realisations? Well, I think I learned to be a bit kinder about myself. <laughs> and I think this idea of trying to see the thread that runs through, even before I started dancing, what are the threads? How does the mesh work of everything, to some extent, even before I was born, how does that mesh work get drawn into this particular corridor of making the film because everything exists outside that corridor as well but can you draw that meshwork like a needle through a huge amount of thread in order to explain working methods in the film there's an 
image of the lion man that was made 40,000 years ago. I think he's the first three-dimensional figure that we have, part animal, part man. He's in the film and I don't think I explain him very much, but for me, he's an iconic figure because he is this idea that starts so long ago as a human endeavour. Now, if I can include him in the film, and I do, then to some extent there are these threads from thousands of years ago that pass through me and I am part Neanderthal. I'm not just a human being, I'm part Neanderthal. They pass through each of us, this huge history. And how can you touch on that idea of having a huge history in a brief film? And by doing so, does that help gather other people into this idea that each of us have a huge history? And for this brief moment, for 35 minutes, we're in each other's company, in the company of so many other images that we can share just at this particular moment. It sounds so exciting and I can't wait to see it. I'm really hoping to be in London at Sadler's. I wanted to ask you, it's been shown before, this isn't a premiere, but how are you looking forward to the performance at Sadler's, which is obviously such an iconic dance venue? And also, what will the topic of the post-show discussion be? Because I know that's going to be a really nice element of the evening. The film opened at the London Film Festival. I was absolutely thrilled that a dance work should be seen in a big film festival. I thought that was a great testament for dance, let alone for this film. Sadler's Wells, I must have performed in it in the very early 70s, before it was even redesigned. If I spend the time, I can see myself as a young dancer grow older in its walls. Transparent is probably the last big work I will make. And it felt very tender that I should be able to show this last work that I'm proud of and remember at the same time that very young dancer on Sadler's Wells stage. It definitely has meaning for me. It's a really beautiful reflection. And you said it might be your last big work that you're going to make, but I wanted to ask you, obviously you've done a lot of reflection, but looking to the future, are are there still things that you want to keep exploring, even if it's not large-scale work? I can't stop exploring. I think it's quite restful to also feel I don't necessarily have to present everything. I can just carry on learning. Some people are asking me to be attached to various projects. I wouldn't have had the time to do that before. And now I'm saying, oh, yes, okay. I've been watching a lot of very deep ocean creatures as part of somebody else's exploration. And these creatures are the most extraordinary you could imagine. And their movement quality is unbelievable. I'm also a senior research fellow at Coventry University at CDARE. So I'm given opportunities to work amongst academics and with other artists to find out how dance is reflected upon by very different people than myself. And that's startling some of the time and very interesting. Amazing. Well, Siobhan, it's been so great to speak to you today about everything. I have one very last question. We always ask if you could meet and talk to any female dance practitioner from history, who would it be and why? And maybe what would you like to ask them? Bronislava Nijinska. Well, she lived through one of the most extraordinary eras of dance during the Diaghilev period. But I think her work, Lenos, is remarkable. It's remarkable because there is not a single moment wasted in every single action. It's also a work in which the music by Stravinsky and the design by Goncharova is totally with all the movement. I saw her very briefly rehearse it. She looked 
extraordinarily tough. I would feel very nervous bringing myself towards her. I think I would have tried to ask her how in, it's not really a question, is I witnessed the confidence within which she did not use strict ballet technique in Lenos. What was the confidence that allowed her to do that? Yeah, as a woman at that time, to be so radical in that framework. In that framework with her brother, the most famous dancer in the world at that time, with Diaghilev. I've always sensed her as this force of clarity that she used. I mean, the dancers do go on point, but it's nothing. Have you seen it? Never live, only through video. It's also about a marriage, but the marriage is also there because it has to be there, because the fruit of that marriage is the only way the future will arrive. So there's something quite pagan and quite dark and quite formal about it all. Hopefully we can all learn from that confidence as well. Yes, I don't know that she was confident, but one there is a, a, a book about her and I haven't read it yet. Ah, yeah, it's a new one, right? I saw the article in the New York Times that was titled Why Has Bronislav Nijinska Been Waiting in the Wings? Talking yeah. about how she's been overlooked to a certain extent. Absolutely, and I mean, there are other works of hers, but Lenos, for me, remains totally present. Totally, totally present every single time I've seen it. It's a formidable, formidable work. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Siobhan, for all your amazing answers and your time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Terpsichore podcast with the amazing Siobhan Davies. If you would like to find out more about Siobhan's work, why not follow Siobhan Davies Studios on Instagram or check out their website at www.siobhandavies.com. If you're based in London, also don't forget to head to Sadler's Wells' Lillian Bayless Studio for a screening of Siobhan's film Transparent and a post-show Q&A on the 20th of April. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and review as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow the Terpsichore podcast on Instagram at terpsichore underscore podcast or Twitter at terpsichore underscore pod. Thanks so much again for listening to the Terpsichore podcast with me, Emily May.